Romans chapter 5. There's a um, little minor announcement we forgot to make this morning. Um, it's one that will probably excite you to no end, but our annual meeting is next week. And uh, yeah, I hear all the, all the really genuine cries of excitement out there for that. Um, but that, that'll take place. It actually is a very important meeting, a great time to get together, not just look at what the Lord has done over the last year, but just sort of gather together as a church and see where we're at and where he's headed in the future as far as, as we know and where we're trying to follow him into 2023-24. So that is at 6 o'clock, am I right? On No, it's at 5 o'clock. What time is it at, Donna? 6. <laughs> Donna, what time is it at? There will be coffee and dessert here sponsored by our El Salvador missions team, and so that'll be a donation basis too, but you'll have some refreshments to enjoy during that time. And although members are... are expected to come if you can. Uh, we certainly invite everyone here who is not a member also to come and join us that night and find out more about the church. And I think you'd really enjoy it as well. So if you are at Romans chapter 5, I'll be telling you exactly where in a second. Uh, but um, it's interesting. I, there's a little gospel presentation that I learned at one time, and maybe you did too, if you're going to try to explain the story of Jesus to somebody and how it applies to their lives. You can take them through something called the Romans Road. Ever heard of that? Um, last week, uh, it's a series of verses throughout the book of Romans you can kind of point to and, and tell the gospel story. And, and last week on Easter, um, we actually looked at the end of the road. We looked at the, 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 basically the end of the Romans road, which is Romans 10, 9, and 10, about how we put our faith in Jesus. And I didn't realize I was doing this, but the verse that I picked out this week is actually also along the road a couple of steps back. It's Romans 5, 8. Romans 5.8 is a verse that you may have heard before, you may even have memorized at some point. It's a really powerful and, and central verse in the Bible. But let me go ahead and, and begin. We're going to kind of major on that verse, but let me start reading in verse 6 of Romans 5. This is the Apostle Paul talking to us here. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was something of a uh, controversy uh, several years ago in uh, the praise and worship world. I think I may have alluded to it with you one time before. But the controversy had to do with the song, In Christ Alone. In Christ Alone. And we do that one a lot. It's a, great, it's a great song, one of the most popular worship songs of the last 25 years. But what was happening was a number of churches were changing the lyrics of the song. And they were, in particular, they were changing the lyrics of the second verse of the song. And there's a place in that verse where it says that, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And what some of these churches did was they changed the line from that to, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified instead of the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, why would churches want to do this? And what does that tell us, by the way, about how people today, both inside and outside the church, understand or maybe even in some sense misunderstand the message of the gospel? 
the angle, we're looking at the gospel um, over the next few weeks from, from different angles, looking at the story of Jesus, the saving message of Christ and what he has done for us, but we're looking at it from different angles because the gospel in some ways is kind of like a beautiful diamond that, that if you turn it and look at it from, from different perspectives, you'll see different things in it, different beautiful things in it. And so we're going to look at it um, from a particular angle today. And the angle that I want to approach the gospel from today is, is, is pretty powerful. I think it's very powerful. And for some of you, if you really understand what the Bible is getting at today, it's actually going to change your view of God, maybe at a very basic level. And I hope that happens. But I also have to say this. We have to be careful in how we approach this particular topic because we cannot afford to misunderstand it. Um, about a thousand years ago, way back in the, in the 11th century, a French theologian by the name of Peter Abelard he looked around at the Christianity of his day, and what he observed was that God was often being portrayed as, as kind of a, a vindictive and mean and vengeful deity who was always angry, and his intense anger could only be placated by a blood sacrifice, and that's why Jesus had to die. And, and, and this was a God that was very fearful. It was a God that you would fear, and we are supposed to fear God, but this was a God that you would fear not so much, not so much out of, of awe and respect, but a God that you would fear because he basically had anger issues. And you never knew when this God was going to go off on you, so you'd better keep him happy. And a lot of people were presented with that kind of a God in, in, in the middle of, of the Middle Ages there. And in response to this distortion of God's character, Abelard set off to rediscover the love of God in the story of Jesus. And his conclusion led to what is now often referred to by theologians as the moral influence theory of the atonement. Now here's basically what that means. That's kind of the technical term. But, but the, the gist of what it says is this. This theory says that, that Christ's death on the cross was not really in any way a punishment for sin. And in fact, that it did nothing at all to change our position relative to God. It, it, the theory really says this, that what the cross does is it gives us the ultimate expression, the ultimate example of God's love in Christ. And when we come to terms with the intensity of that love, how much God loved us there, we will be so impacted by that that we will be changed into different people. We will think differently we will live differently, and in that way, we will, in some sense, be saved. And that's because according to this particular conception of the gospel, mankind's basic problem is not that we are guilty rebels in need of forgiveness, but that we are ignorant rebels who just don't know how much God loves us. And if we just knew how much God loved us, then we'd be different people. That's the theory. So, how does that work? How does that sound? Does this sound good to you? Can, can, can a demonstration of love like that really change people's hearts? Is there truth to what Abelard is saying? Let me give you an example. This is a story that, that um, it, it's actually from about 500 years after that. It's when I were in the 16th century. But this is supposedly a true story that I read somewhere from uh, across the channel from France over in England at the time when England was being ruled by the Puritans under Oliver Cromwell. Some of you have learned about Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. But as the story goes, it goes like this. A young military officer was found guilty of some serious offense. And so he was sentenced by Cromwell to be executed on a particular evening at the sounding of the curfew bell. So when the bell went off for curfew, he was going to be killed. Uh, the man was engaged to be married, uh, 
And the man's fiance, in desperation, climbed all the way up into the bell tower and tied herself to the huge clapper that rang the bell. When the time of the execution arrived and all that came from the bell was a strange, muffled, thumping sound, uh, Cromwell told the other soldiers to go up and check on the bell and see what was wrong with it. And they went and they brought down the bruised and bleeding fiancé. And Cromwell, it is said, was so affected by this woman's act of love that he proclaimed, curfew will not ring tonight. And he pardoned the soldier. Now, um, true story, I don't know. Maybe, supposedly. but, But can a demonstration of love like that, have a powerful effect on us? Can seeing that kind of love, can that inspire us to change the way we think, the way we act, the way we respond to people? Yes, I think it can. But can it save us? Can it save us? Abelard's error was not in what he rediscovered, but in what he neglected. Because if the cross was merely a demonstration of God's love, if that's all that was, then it has no power to save because it does not take our sin problem seriously. And in this case, Christ didn't really die for anything. He, was just, he didn't die to, to pay for anything. He didn't atone for anything. He's just showing us something. So the moral influence theory is what we call it, but that's a truncated gospel. It's, a, it's an incomplete gospel. It brings us basically into the front door of the house, but it never takes us into the main room. Abelard's theory of the atonement back a thousand years ago didn't really get a lot of traction. A lot, a lot of people believed in it, didn't go very far, but you've probably figured out by now that it is very, very popular today. And this is the gospel that is most commonly preached in what we would call the liberal or progressive churches of our day because they are repulsed by the idea of God ever being angry or wrathful at anything. And so it can't be that the wrath of God was satisfied. It had to be just that the love of God was magnified. And they believe that God, the idea of God punishing his own son for the sins of others is nothing more than cosmic child abuse. Now, they're wrong. And um, I don't have the four hours right now to go to all the reasons why they're wrong. I think you, you understand that they are. But listen, we in the Bible-believing evangelical church need to know where they're coming from. Because quite frankly, they're on to something. They're on to something. And it's something that a lot of us need to rediscover. I want you to remember the key verse that we already looked at that we read earlier. But God demonstrated or showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us. Here's the really big idea for today. Here it is. The death of Jesus on the cross, the death of Christ on the cross, is not merely a demonstration of God's love for us, but... It certainly is such a demonstration. It is, in fact, the proof of God's love for us. In fact, that word in Romans 5, 8, the word that's translated demonstrate or show, or in the King James you might have God commended his love toward us. That word in Greek means to bring together two things so that they agree and line up with each other. So in this case, it's bringing together God's words and his actions when it comes to his love. Because you and I can say all day that we love each other, that I love you, you love me, we love so-and-so, right? But eventually, it can't be just words, right? Eventually, we have to prove our words by our actions. What do our wives tell us, men? If you love me like you say you love me, then you will stop leaving the toilet seat up. or You know? You will pick up your socks. You will put down the remote and pay attention to me. 
You will listen sometimes and try to understand where I'm coming from. Whatever it is, love comes out in and is proved by our actions toward one another, right? Otherwise, the words are just empty. So how did God prove his love? Romans 5.8. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Now, why on earth would anybody die for a sinner? That's what Paul's talking about all through verse 7. He's, he's kind of puzzling. He's trying to figure it out. He's saying, you know what? I guess somebody might die for a righteous man, but why would anybody die for a sinner? You see, in, in our moral universe, that kind of thing doesn't make sense. But God is not like us. God's love is different than ours. It's stronger. It's better. It's, it's higher and deeper and longer and wider, Ephesians says. You know, I think sometimes that we, we assume something. We assume that if God's character is going to be really holy, if God's character is going to be perfect, then God has to be symmetrical, right? He has to be balanced. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that. We, we tend to think, or we're conditioned to think this way, that if something is perfect, that means that it has to have absolute symmetry and balance. When they go out and look for, you know, the modeling agency or movie stars or whatever, and they, they look for the perfect human face, the perfectly beautiful human face, one of the things they're always looking for is symmetry. That the, the, exactly the same on one side of the face as the other. That's, that's supposed to be something that's very beautiful, and that's, that's part of the theory of aesthetics, that symmetry is beautiful, and that the most pretty girl in the world has, a, has, has the, the most symmetrical face. Meanwhile, what is the most famous painting in the history of the world? So the Mona Lisa... Why has the Mona Lisa drawn people in for hundreds of years? Have you seen her? I've seen her from like, you know, 30 feet away, as close as I could get, but you've seen pictures, right? She's not all that symmetrical, right? I mean, her, her smile's a little bit warped. Kind of like she's getting away with something. What about, what about the stuff that God made? What about all the beautiful mountains that God has made that, that, that we can be inspired by and admire is any one of those mountains that you're thinking of right now even close to being like a perfect isosceles triangle? Probably not. They're, a lot of the beautiful things in this world are asymmetrical. They're unbalanced, right? There's a beautiful, you know, asymmetry there. There's a lopsidedness to many of the things that we think are absolutely beautiful and perfect. Well, let me ask you this. That was kind of a, of a diversion, but let me ask you this. What if God is, what if his character is lopsided? What if God is asymmetrical? Would he still be perfect? I mean, we're quick to say this, right? We say, oh, somebody will tell us, God is a God of love. And we'll say, okay, yeah, he is, but he's also a God of wrath. Okay, fine, God is a God of love, God is a God of wrath. But, but symmetrically? In the same way? In the same amounts? Is it kind of a yin and yang thing where they have to be exactly identical? What does God say about himself? In probably the most complete and, and stark description that God gives of himself in the whole Old Testament to Moses in Exodus 34, God describes himself this way. He says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Okay? Slow to anger and abounding in love. Why is it not slow to anger and slow to love if he's symmetrical? Why is it not abounding in love and abounding in anger. That's not what he says, right? He says, he says, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
There's a certain asymmetry there, isn't there? What about in Micah 6, 8, very famous verse where God tells us what he expects of us, and he says, he has shown me what is good and what the Lord requires, and he says, you need to do justice and love mercy. Why, why is it not do justice and just show mercy? Why is it do justice but love mercy? Is that not perhaps reflective of something in God's own heart that prefers mercy? Why does God visit the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, which sounds kind of harsh, right? But then why does he keep his covenant of love for a thousand generations? That's asymmetrical, right? Why does the Bible say that God is love, but it never says that God is wrath? Here's the truth. God is very reluctant to pour out his anger. He doesn't want to see people get hurt. There are lots of places you could go. Let me take you to the Old Testament and to a, a, a book where God is really displaying his wrath to the rebellious people of Israel, Lamentations. In Lamentations 3.33, it just says this, that God does not afflict from the heart. God does not afflict from the heart. God's wrath is real, and it's a response to sin. And, and, and without it, God would not be truly loving, right? Because how could a loving God not hate the sin that destroys the people that he loves? Yes, his wrath is a necessary response, but his love goes deeper. His love goes deeper because it's who he is. It's his heart. God does not afflict from the heart. But that's where his love comes from. That's where his mercy comes from. If there was no sin in the world... God would not be wrathful, but he would still be loving. It's just who he is. It's who he is. He's a little unbalanced, but in a good way. When Jesus showed up on earth and he encountered all these horrible sinners, what did he do? Did he run away from them? Did he put up his guard and, and try to hide from them? Did he rail at them for their sin? No, what did he do? He ran to them. He ran right into the brokenness of their lives. He gravitated toward it. His heart pulled him into it. He couldn't help himself because it wasn't the healthy that needed his touch. It was the hurting. It was the broken. That's how he found you. That's how he found me, right? Now, when Jesus is healing people and, and loving on broken people, does he ever point out their sin? Yeah, he does sometimes. Sometimes he does. He tells the lame man that he's just healed at the pool of Bethesda. He says, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. He reminds the woman at the well that she's in an immoral relationship. But he never, he never skips over the other kinds of brokenness, does he? The loneliness, the shame, the disease and disability, the demonic oppression, the social alienation that people are experiencing. Jesus doesn't just slough those things off and tell people, you know, forget about that because the real problem is your sin. He never says that because these other things are real too and Jesus feels them and it hurts him deeply to see people suffering from these things and so he does something about it. With Jesus, just like with that woman in John chapter 8 that was caught in adultery, it's not, it's not, Go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. No, it's, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. We have to get the order right. There are many, many people in this world and in this county, there are people who do not know Christ, and they're hurting, and they're broken, and they've just been destroyed in one way or another. But they're afraid to walk into an evangelical church like ours because their expectation is that we're just going to heap a bunch of guilt on them. 
They literally think that's what will happen if they walk through this door. Now, do they have some guilt? Yeah. In fact, they probably wouldn't be afraid of the guilt thing if, if they didn't sense deep down that they're guilty of something. But you know what? Right now, that's not where they're at. They're not going to walk into our church and say, hey, everybody, I need God to forgive me for my, for my idolatry and my rebellion. What can I do? That's not going to happen. And you know what? Truth be told, some of their brokenness is not their fault. It's the result of abuse from someone else or rejection or betrayal by other people. And then usually a whole lot of bad teaching and bad advice heaped on top of that. That's what people have. And these folks may be more likely sometimes to walk into a more progressive or liberal church that's just going to give them half a gospel. Or they might wander into First Alliance, right? Because after all, some of them don't know what this alliance thing is, right? They're like, well, they're not Baptist, they're not Presbyterian, they're not Methodist. I guess I'll try it out then. (laughs) You know? We get some of that. So they show up in here. What do they experience here? What do broken people really broken people, what do they experience? Will we run to them like Jesus did, or will we put up our guard? Will we try to clean them up first somehow, or will we tell them they have to clean themselves up first? Or will we show them first a Jesus who gravitates to their brokenness and wants to heal them? And will we point them to a Savior savior who willingly goes to the cross, not only because there's a price to be paid, but also because of a love that refuses to give up on anybody that would come to him? Now, speaking of the cross, we know what Jesus did on the cross, right? What did Jesus do on the cross? He died for our sins, right? He died in our place. The wrath of God was satisfied, right? He did all that. But how did he do it? And I don't mean how, like, what was the means, but I mean, I mean what, what did it look like? What, it, what kind of a death did Jesus die if you were just kind of watching all this happen? What would you say about his death? Let me just start you off a little bit with a few things that you probably have thought of. But for one thing... Jesus died rejected. He died rejected. Isaiah, in chapter 53 of his prophecy, about 700 years before Christ, actually gives us a very vivid picture of Jesus' death. And he says this about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men like someone from whom people hide their faces. Ultimately, he was even abandoned by his best friends and and then, in the end, forsaken by God himself. So Jesus died rejected. What else? He died misunderstood. Isaiah again. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we thought he was the guilty one. After all, he, he died like a criminal, under a curse. I mean, we figured that he must have brought this on himself. Jesus died misunderstood. But there's more. He also died unjustly. He died, Isaiah again, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Jesus, in a series of trials before powerful and influential people, was slandered, he was judged unfairly, and he was wrongly condemned in every single trial. He died unjustly. So let's just stop there for a moment before we go on, because I've got more to say about that. But he died rejected, he died misunderstood, he died unjustly. Do you see how compelling that is just by itself for a lot of really broken people? Because they're coming, they're saying, look, there's Jesus. Wow, here's a guy who understands what I've been going through. Because 
people hide their faces from me too. In fact, sometimes I feel like they don't even know that I exist and they never even look at me except to criticize me or to find fault with me somehow. I've had so-called friends walk away from me. I've been lied about. I've been accused of lots of things I didn't do. I've had people make all sorts of wrong assumptions about me too. And you know what? A lot of them have written me off just like they wrote Jesus off. Maybe here's a guy who really does understand. I was thinking of reading you some verses from Hebrews 4 at this point, but Dawn already did that. I didn't know she was going to, about how he, he... identifies with us. I'm sure you've all seen the ad campaign that premiered during the Super Bowl, right? The one about Jesus? Probably seen Jesus. He gets us. All of us. That's how it ends up. Now, I don't know what you think of those ads, but I really like them. I like, they get criticized. Some people don't like them because they don't really tell the whole gospel story, and it's true, they don't. He gets us is definitely not the whole story. But let me tell you, it sure is a good first sentence. It sure is a good front door to the house because part of the unbelievable love of Jesus was his willingness to identify with us, not just in the frailness and weakness of our humanity, but in the depths of the pain of our humanity and the things that happen to us sometimes. Because love goes there. Love goes there. Love gets down off its high horse and it sits down in the dust with the one who's being loved. And Jesus traveled an infinite distance to do just that for us. But like I said, that's only part of his love because it's only part of the story. Let's look a little closer at his death. Yes, he died rejected. He died misunderstood. He died unjustly. But this is important. He also died sacrificially. He died sacrificially. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. When did he say that? He said that as people were driving spikes through his hands and nailing them to a piece of wood. It's an unthinkable thing to say. But on what basis could he even say it? He could only say it because he was in the process of taking those men's sins upon himself at that very moment. You see, the love of Christ conquers sin. Not by ignoring it. Not by downplaying it. But by absorbing it. By actually absorbing it. It is an amazing love that would identify with us in our weaknesses and our shame and our misunderstandings and our our pain, all the different forms of our brokenness, but that's not where the love of God in Christ stops. It keeps going past all that. You know, the ironic thing about this moral influence understanding of the gospel is that in trying to highlight Christ's love, it actually ends up underestimating it. You see, in Romans 5.8, it says in the last phrase that Christ died for us, for us. And for us can mean a lot of different things, but if you look at the context of the verses around it, which is all about how how someone might, might dare to die for somebody else, it is impossible to understand that verse as saying the cross was merely a demonstration. Because in that context, the end of the verse only makes sense if for us means not to impress us, but instead of us. Instead of, because in dying on that cross, Jesus not only went through certain things that we all go through, he also went went through some things that no one has ever gone through. Things that we who trust in him will thankfully never have to go through because he already went through them in our place. Like what? Jesus knows what it's like to be utterly rejected by God. Jesus knows what it's like to carry the sin of every human being, including me and you, on his body. 
Jesus knows what it's like to face head on the fury of a holy God at all of that sin of ours. Jesus knows what hell feels like. Because that's what he went through on the cross. And God the Father knows what it's like to watch your son go through that hell and force yourself not to step in even though you could have stopped it. Now, why did he do this? The Bible tells us in a whole lot of places. Greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, while we were dead in sins, made us alive in Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that those who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. The next verse says, by the way, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, God really wants to save us. He really wants to save you. He is slow to anger, but anxious to forgive. It's not his desire, Scripture tells us, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, not everyone will. Not everyone will. But everyone needs to hear that invitation. This is the heart of God. This is who He is. He is perfect. He is good. He is just. He is merciful. He is love. He is love. When our kids were little, we would occasionally read a book to them at bedtime that was called Just In Case You Ever Wonder. Ever seen that one? It's by Christian author Max Lucado. And uh, a book was basically told the child that the parents had always been there with him from the very beginning and would keep loving the child no matter what he goes through in life. One of the things Romans 5.8 tells us is that the death of Christ is not only the payment for our sin, but it is also God's version of just in case you ever wonder. So just in case you ever wonder if God really loves you, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Let's pray.